please uh, keep your Bible open at Mark 10. If you haven't got a Bible, do find it on your phone. Mark 10, 32 to 45. And uh, I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help as we study his word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word in our hands this morning. We thank you that in a world full of unreliable, untrue and unhelpful words, that in scripture we have a word that is trustworthy, true, timeless and profoundly helpful. So speak to us this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you know, um, Donald Trump will soon be leaving the White House, rather reluctantly, but uh, he's going to be leaving it. Uh, Famous, of course, for his brash and rather unpredictable remarks, there's already a steady stream of books and articles appearing on the internet featuring some of the more memorable statements made by the current leader of the free world. So, for example, at the start of his election campaign back in 2015-16, Donald Trump said, I am the most successful person ever to run for the presidency by far. Nobody's ever been more successful than me. Later, when asked how he would deal with his enemies, he said, If someone attacks you, don't hesitate, go for the jugular. And earlier this year, when COVID-19 was sweeping around the world, Donald Trump said, we have it totally under control. Uh, It's just one person coming in from China. It's going to be just fine. So there you have one style of leadership. Boastful, aggressive, totally out of touch with reality. Here's a different approach from the lips of the greatest leader the world has ever seen and you'll find it in verse 45 of our passage this morning. Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Very famous words. But in order to feel their power and their significance for us this morning, we first need to see them in their proper context. So, in case you're with us for the first time or new to Mark's Gospel, let me remind you that Mark's Gospel is divided very neatly into two halves. The first part, chapters 1 to 8, is asking the question, who is Jesus? And it ends with Peter's famous words, you are the Christ. The second part of Mark's Gospel is asking the question, What has Jesus come to do? And the answer is, he's come to die. So three times in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, Jesus tells the disciples he's going to die. And every time Jesus says that, there's a strange response from the disciples. So the first time Jesus says, I'm going to die in chapter 8, Peter says... We'll make sure that's never going to happen. And he has to be corrected. Then in chapter 9, when Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified, there's a rather bizarre discussion amongst the disciples about who's the greatest. 
And then in chapter 10, our passage this morning, when Jesus says he's going to die, there is this shameful response from James and John who come to ask Jesus for a special place in the kingdom. So Mark wants us to notice here that Jesus is focused on his death. James and John, on the other hand, are focused on their success. Now that, I think, is reminding us that there are two forces always at work in the world. I can't tell you how important this is. One is the force of man or humanity, which is all about promoting self. And that, of course, means eliminating Christ. Uh, If you doubt me on that, just watch what happens at Christmas, because at Christmas, humanity tries its hardest to blot out the wonder of Christmas with stuff. Stuff we don't need, stuff we can't afford. But then there's another force at work in the world, which is the force of God. The force of God's Son, who's got this tremendous passion to see people informed, rescued, and given eternal life, even at the cost of Jesus' life. And if you don't believe that, well, read the Bible account of Christmas. Now, I think it's going to be difficult to see these two forces in the world more clearly anywhere else than in the 14 verses we're looking at together this morning. So, just two headings. Two headings. The first is two conflicting missions and then secondly, two conflicting motives. Two conflicting missions, two conflicting motives. Firstly then, two conflicting missions. Verses 32 to 34. So stand back for a moment. Here's Jesus. He's come from heaven. He's come into the world. And in verse 32, he's heading towards Jerusalem. Notice he's doing it with great determination. Verse 32 says they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished uh, while those who followed were afraid. So notice Jesus is out in front. He's not looking to escape. He's not hiding. Uh, He's not expecting the disciples to lead. He's leading. And he's so serious about what he's doing that the disciples are astonished. It's as if they're thinking to themselves, well, what's going on here? Why is he so serious? Why is Jesus in such a hurry to get to Jerusalem? And then the other people following Jesus in the crowd, well, they're afraid. We're not told why. Uh, Perhaps it was because they saw something in Jesus which they'd never seen in anybody else, and they were feeling rather unsettled about it. They didn't understand it. I've sometimes wondered what it would be like to watch Uh, a Christian friend or a pastor or a missionary being executed for their faith. What must that be like for a Christian wife or the children of a pastor to watch them being martyred? Of course, it happens a lot, doesn't it, in certain countries today? 
not here mercifully, but plenty of places elsewhere in the world. So this is not a theoretical question. It must be an overwhelming experience, don't you think? And here is Jesus, he's leading the way, and he's effectively leading the way to his own funeral. The crowd probably haven't grasped the details, but they can feel that the weight of what he's doing. And for the third time, Jesus talks about his death. And in this third prediction of his death, he's very explicit. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Now, we've seen that phrase before. It comes from the Old Testament, where the Son of Man is a heavenly figure who's given all authority over all people everywhere in every generation. And Jesus takes that title, the Son of Man, to refer to himself for two reasons. First, it reveals who he actually is to the people who are listening carefully. But second, it actually sounds rather ordinary and unoffensive to those who are hostile and against him. And Jesus says, the Son of Man, the one who deserves all the honour and the glory, is going to be betrayed. That's how shocking that statement is. And it's going to be the religious leaders who will eventually hand the Messiah over to the pagans, the Romans. And that's because although the Jewish people were allowed to pronounce a guilty verdict, they weren't actually allowed to carry out a death sentence. They had to get the Romans to do that. So there's a double shock in this verse. It's the son of man who's going to be betrayed. That is a shock if you know who he is. And he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And then he explains that he's going to be treated very shamefully, that they're going to kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And if we ask, well, why does Jesus set this out so clearly and in such tremendous detail? Well, the answer has to be so that they won't be surprised when it happens. They'll be upset. But they'll be able to say, yes, he told us. Unfortunately, they're not listening. And it's important for us this morning to realise that the death of Jesus was the key to his plans even while the disciples weren't understanding it at all. Jesus' plan was to get to Jerusalem and at the cross he's going to face the consequences for our sin and he's going to provide the benefits of his faithfulness. So if you like, at the cross there's going to be an exchange or a swap. So he's going to take what we deserve in order to offer to us what he deserves. One writer points out that there have been many good men who've been killed or assassinated. Men like Abraham Lincoln or Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King. But it was never in their plans to be killed. But it was always in the plan of Jesus to be killed. And his mission is to die, to pay, to forgive, to save. 
So that is the mission of Jesus. But there's another mission in the world. And that is the mission of man to get rid of Jesus. And of course those two things actually work beautifully together. The plan of Jesus and the plan of man work perfectly together uh, in the design of God. Now today, of course, we try and get rid of Jesus far more politely and sweetly. And yet there are many places in the world where the name of Jesus has been eradicated violently or aggressively. I don't think you will ever understand yourself or the world in which we're living unless you understand what we're being told here in Mark chapter 10 which is that in every human heart, every human heart, there's the desire to get rid of Jesus. And if that desire is given full expression, it leads to what we see at Calvary. So friends, don't let's be under any illusions here. This is my heart and this is your heart. And it's only when God takes hold of us and gives us a new heart that we find we do have a heart that believes and trusts and actually does want to follow Jesus. And friends, can I emphasise that until we grasp this, we're never going to understand ourselves or the church or the world. Some of you will have heard of the former politician turned evangelist, Charles Colson, who died a few years ago now. After his death, Uh, Some of his writings were brought together in a book entitled My Final Word. And there's a place in that book where Chuck Colson says that on one occasion he was visiting a prison in Norway. That was his ministry. He went and preached in prisons around the world. And in Norway, the justice system rejects completely the idea of sin and evil. They don't actually believe that people do bad things. They just believe people have big problems. And so instead of requiring punishment, they say, what criminals need is therapy. That's what they think in Norway. And Charles Colson says that on one particular occasion, uh, this this prison he was at was astonishing to him because um, it looked more like a laboratory than a prison. Um, All of the correctional officers were wearing lab coats. And uh, the inmates, or the patients as they like to call them, were completely drugged up to the eyeballs. And Colson says it was the most unresponsive congregation he ever preached to. But he did his best to explain sin and salvation. And uh, afterwards, a very pretty correctional officer came up to him to say she'd never heard anything like that before. And she said, this Christian faith, well, it clearly makes so much sense. And um, obviously, if prisoners' lives are going to be changed, therapy alone isn't going to do it. They need Jesus. And Coulson goes on to say that he heard later that this correctional officer had been given the job of accompanying a prisoner to the theatre as part of his therapy. And uh, on the way to the theatre, the prisoner had murdered this correctional officer. And the prison had no way of explaining that, other than to say that it was 
rather sad. But no one would use the word sin. And Colson concludes by saying that by refusing to acknowledge sin, we make things so much worse. We actually increase the dangers of evil because we don't hold people accountable. Now, of course, it's unpopular to talk about sin. But can I say it is utterly irresponsible to deny it? And as Colson says, because we believe people are deprived rather than depraved, we remove moral responsibility and we increase social chaos. So, friends, those are the two forces at work in our world today. There are two conflicting missions. One mission is to wipe out Christianity, either violently or politely. The other is the great work of God to change people and to save people. And that's going on every hour of every day. Those two forces are both at work in the world this morning. Praise God for the second. So that's the first thing this morning. Two conflicting missions. Secondly, I want us to think for a few moments about two conflicting motives. Now this is verses 35 to 45. Where, as it were, the screen gets pulled back and we begin to see what is in the hearts of James and John. Which, by the way, is no different to anybody else. Because in verse 35... James and John come to Jesus and if you ask what's going on in their hearts the answer is in their request or prayer to Jesus in verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You ever prayed a prayer like that? Lord, I want you to do whatever I ask. And their specific request in verse 37 is let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Aren't you thankful that not all our prayers are answered? Aren't you thankful that we actually lift up our prayers to someone who is perfect in wisdom, perfect in love, perfect in power, and who will sometimes say, it was great that you asked, but quite frankly, you don't know what you're talking about. Because, friends, this is an extremely foolish request, as you'll see in a moment. Please notice that Peter uh, is not part of this, and if you've been with us on the journey through Mark, that's a surprise. Because we've seen a number of times in Mark's Gospel that Jesus takes... James and John and Peter. Uh, He takes them away from the rest of the disciples in order to prepare them for their leadership responsibilities after his death. But here, Peter doesn't seem to feature, does he, in the plans of James and John? And their request, well, they must have blushed when they read this later. Because somehow... All the serious information from Jesus about him going to the cross, well, that's been forgotten, been totally ignored. I think this is really rather like a child 
being told that uh, someone special in the family has just died and the child says, um, well, please can I have some money for an ice cream? And that's how immature this request is. How lonely and isolating for Jesus that he had to work with this kind of material, don't you think? But of course, that is exactly the kind of material that Jesus works with as he builds his church today. And you and I should find that really rather reassuring. And it should fill us with even greater love and admiration for him. Why are James and John asking for the best seats for themselves? Suppose if we want to be really charitable, it might be that they're thinking, well, after Jesus dies, we heard that he's going to rise and he's going to go into glory. We don't want to miss that. We want to be really close to him. I think that would be probably the most charitable spin that you could put on this. But given that Jesus says in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, I think it's much more likely that they're sneaking up to Jesus, that they're forgetting all about the talk of suffering and thinking only about glory for themselves and they want prime position next to Jesus in glory. Now, of course, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to read that and think, well, that's not me. I'm not like that. I have to admit that that was my first reaction when I read this. But, of course, I'm not better than that. Am I capable of a prayer which is asking God as cleverly as I can to do certain things so that I will be comfortable and not suffer? Yes, I am. Am I capable of asking if God will work in such a way so that I get some recognition? Yes, I'm capable of that too. And I suspect you are as well. We're all capable, aren't we, of this kind of self-focused request. Now, the great irony in the prayer, and the reason their prayer is so extremely foolish is that the glory of Jesus is about to be seen in his sacrificial death on the cross. That's where his glory is going to be seen. And yes, there will be someone on his right and someone on his left, criminals, crucified. And the real question, I suppose, is would James and John really like those positions? Would they like to be with Jesus then in his glory? Or do they want to sort of fast past that, detour round it, and go straight to the glory in heaven without the suffering that comes first? And that's why Jesus says to them in verse 38, Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? I hope you know that the, the word cup is kind of a loaded word from the Old Testament that signifies judgment. So the Old Testament speaks about how the wicked will drink the cup of God's wrath. So when Jesus says that he's about to drink the cup, uh, he knows that he's about to drink 
the cup of the judgment of God the Father on him for our sins. And when he says he's going to be baptised, again, that is another loaded word from the Old Testament for being um, immersed or plunged or submerged in trouble. So Isaiah 43, for example, speaks about going through deep waters, meaning experiences that are utterly overwhelming. And Jesus says he's going to be plunged into the just but utterly overwhelming punishment for our sin. So his question, you know, can you drink the cup, can you be baptised with my baptism, is designed to sober James and John, is designed to wake them up so that they say, we're terribly sorry, we didn't think about that. No, we're not capable of it. But they don't. They're not thinking. They just say, yes, we can. So Jesus comes back to them and he says, yes, you will suffer. There will be a cup for you. There will be a baptism for you. It won't actually be the judgment cup or the judgment baptism, but it's going to be the cup of persecution. We saw that last week, didn't we? And the baptism of persecution. Because Jesus takes away the judgment and the wrath of God by his death. But he does not remove the consequences of discipleship where they're going to experience the cup of persecution and trouble. Just as an aside, is it too much to think that Jesus, looking even further down the road was transforming baptism and the cup so that those things actually become blessings. So we know baptism, don't we, as the welcome the church gives to new believers. And we know the cup as the celebration of the fact that I'm forgiven because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for me and for you. Well, friends, this is not empty talk this morning, is it? Because, you see, every time someone you love, who is a Christian, dies, why is that person able to go safely and securely and immediately into the presence of Jesus? Well, the answer is because Jesus drank the cup and he was baptised with the judgement of God. And there was nothing, there is nothing that can prevent that person we love, if they're a Christian, from going through death and being immediately in the presence of Christ. So these are not small things that we're talking about this morning. These are big things. Well, Jesus turns from the embarrassing question from James and John and he he turns it into a teaching moment. And especially as in verse 41, did you notice this? The other disciples are annoyed with James and John for thinking only of themselves and forgetting them as if they would have done any better and they wouldn't. And Jesus teaches them that if you push for positions of power and prestige, you're actually going to be no different from any other leader in the pagan world. That's how it is in the culture. People pushing others out of the way, 
because their motive is to get into positions of power and prestige for themselves. And that's why Jesus says in verse 42, Gentile rulers lord it over other people. They exercise authority. But then he says to the disciples, not so with you. You've got a new motive. And your new motive is not to lord it over other people. Your new motive is to serve. Just please notice that in verse 43, Jesus isn't giving them a command. He's not saying, go and serve. Go and serve. He's not doing that. What he actually says is, not so with you. Meaning, you're new. You've been changed. He's speaking to them as if they've already been completely transformed. In fact, for them, then, that process won't be complete until Pentecost. But Jesus speaks to them here as members of his kingdom who are going to be given a brand new spirit in their heart. And the Holy Spirit is going to cause them to want to serve without being asked to do so. And in the same way, I don't need to say to you this morning, go and serve. Because if you've already been made new by Jesus, you'll want to do that quite naturally. And you'll serve, not because you need a throne to secure your identity, because your identity is already perfectly secure in Jesus. You belong to him. So you can go out and serve without trying to justify yourself or prove a point. Jesus himself didn't need earthly glory and honour because he says in verse 45 he already has it because he's the son of man. But instead he says something in verse 45 that is absolutely astonishing. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, that must be one of the greatest sentences in the New Testament. If you've never understood Christianity before, please will you write down Mark 10:45 and learn it this week. Because you see, this is Christianity in a nutshell. Jesus says he's the Son of Man. He is the heavenly King. And he's not looking for people to go and do good things in order to make it into heaven. He's not looking for that at all. He himself is going to do the serving and the giving and the laying down his life as a ransom. I think we all understand the word ransom, don't we? Because we know that when somebody's kidnapped, the kidnappers demand a ransom before they'll set the captive free. And in exactly the same way, the Bible tells us that the entire human race is captive by birth. It doesn't look like it. In most places in Cape Town, it looks like the human race is marvellously free. But the Bible says the human race is captive because all the people in Cape Town, all of them, 
are going to die and they're all going to face judgment, all of them. And without a ransom, they'll be separated from God and from everything good forever. But God has paid the ultimate price by sending his son who's, as it were, bled out his life as a ransom so that every believer can be immediately delivered and can emerge, can be saved from that spiritual death, that judgment, that separation that I mentioned a moment ago. So, friends, there are two conflicting missions. Jesus seeking to rescue, people trying to obliterate him, And there are two conflicting motives. Uh, There are people looking out only for themselves and their own advantage. And there's Jesus looking to serve and to save at the greatest possible cost to himself. And can I say to you that these conflicting missions and these conflicting motives explain everything in our world today. Everything. Now let me close by suggesting a couple of things you might take away from this this week. Number one, do you notice that although Jesus has very good reasons not to go to Jerusalem, he goes there anyway. He goes unswervingly to the cross for you. So friends, this week let's remind ourselves that whilst there may be lots and lots of things against us, and there are, Jesus Christ goes steadily to the cross for us. And that's because he is for us. So whenever you're feeling overwhelmed by all the things that are against you, in your mind, picture Jesus going to the cross for you. Think of him doing that. Because Jesus is for you. Second, please don't fall for those power struggles in the world which are so cunning and so deceptive as if the whole key to life is getting more power and authority. Because Jesus shows us in his mission that it's actually in serving where the real victory and the real breakthroughs and greatness are to be found. And today, of course, Jesus, the ultimate servant, is on the throne of the universe and he's never coming off it. I've never actually seen the television series uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, I've got absolutely no idea what it's about. But it is a very good slogan for the way the world works. Because the thrones of this world, my friend, are games. Yes, we respect our leaders and the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. I hope we do. But in the end, our leaders are playing the game because one minute they're on the throne and next minute, like Donald Trump, they're off the throne. But Jesus will always be on the throne of the universe. Thirdly, remember, will you, that the ransom that Jesus has paid is sufficient not just for this morning or this afternoon, but forever. 
And if you're a Christian, it means that God has opened your eyes to see spiritual reality in a way the world can't. So remember that Jesus has brought you out of slavery to sin and death. And remember that he's written the word forgiven across your case file. And that's never going to change. And you've got to continually remind yourself that you are a forgiven person and that by his blood, Jesus has already guaranteed your place in the life of the world to come. So friends, let's thank him and let's praise him for that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very wonderful truth that in a world that is marked by great hostility to you, there is also great love from you. And we thank you that in a world marked by self-promotion and self-seeking, there is one who came to give his life as a ransom And many of us listening this morning want to thank you for doing that work of mercy and grace and bringing us into the company and blessing of Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to live for him by his grace and for his honour this week and always. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.